Hi folks, this is Jack Spirico with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things that we can all do to live a better life. If times get tough, or even if they don't, coming to you once again from Hot Springs Village, Arkansas, high atop the Highway 7 Ridgeline, from TSPN, the Survival Podcast Network headquarters. Today is August the 8th, 2011, and it is a Monday, and you know what that means. Monday means for most people it's the start of the work day, and you're like, oh, God, i got to go back to another day of work. Uh, for me, it's the start of the work day, and I'm like, I get to go back to another day of work, and not only do I get to go back, I get to go back and talk to the people directly because today's listener feedback day. This is the day you send me emails with article for Jack or video for Jack or joke for Jack or something, anything, whatever it is for Jack in the subject line. That gets you into my special sorting folder uh, with about, oh God, about 800 other people and about 10 to 15 of them get through on a Monday. And I'm sorry it's that way, but it's got to be. I'm one guy and I do one hour to an hour and a half every day and that's as much as I can get done for you. So, uh, But I do love it and I want you to know something. I read every email that comes in. I may not read every word of every email, but I read and get the gist of every email. I respond to a lot of them. Generally, when they're show emails, like I'm sending this to you for the show, you know, article for Jack type things, I don't respond to those because the volume is just too heavy. Uh, but I do respond to a lot of personal emails. If I don't get back to you, I'm sorry. I'm, guys, I'm sorry. I can only do so much. Uh, but these are great uh, shows because it's all about you. It's all what you want to hear. So if you want to be on a show like this in the future, uh, put that subject line in there, you know, article for Jack or what have you, question for Jack, and send it to jack at the survivalpodcast.com. That is my real email. There's no need to go through the contact form. There's no need to go through Facebook. There's no, I mean, you can do that stuff if you want to, but understand, I give out this every day, jack at the survivalpodcast.com. It's my personal email. I read it every day. So you can send me an email whenever you want. Alright, before we get into your uh, your submissions this week, let's go ahead and take care of our sponsors. They do an awful lot to help take care of you. Sponsor of the day number one today is Emergency Essentials. They are located at BePrepared.com. Don't know how they managed to snag that domain uh, without the Boy Scouts laying claim to it, but it's a great domain for them because Emergency Essentials does just that. They help you be prepared for whatever life may bring your way. Really specializing heavily in long Long-term storage food items uh, like providing pantry, mountain house, and things like that. They have great food calculators, a lot of articles to help you get started out if you're not sure where to go next. Some really cool products as well. They're a great sponsor. Check them out. Uh, emergency Essentials at BePrepared.com. Next up today is Western Botanicals. When I need something herbal, whether it's a pre-made preparation or a raw herb, I always go to Western Botanicals because I know whatever it is, they're going to have it. And I know that it's either going to be organically grown or wild crafted. And I know if I'm not sure what I need, I can pick the phone up and call them and they will help me. Uh, Dr. Kyle Christensen has a wonderful organization there. And if you need anything in the herbal world, I highly re- recommend you check out westernbotanicals.com. Remember to visit Emergency Essentials, Western Botanicals, or any of our sponsors. The best way to do that is go to the survivalpodcast.com first. Click on their banner in the right-hand margin. That will make sure that you're dealing with the company that actually is a sponsor, not someone whose name sounds like them. Uh, these are the people that actually support the show and have, most of them have been here a very long time. So when you do need something in this world, consider dealing with our sponsors first. 
Uh, next up today, remember, you can connect directly with me in spite of what I said about email on Facebook, YouTube, and Twitter. I tweet quite a bit, and then I go with spurts, like where I'm on Twitter all the time, and then I'm off. So if you've at-shouted at me and I haven't gotten back to you, I probably will sooner or later. Facebook, a lot of, a lot of you guys want to be my friend in the personal world on Facebook. I don't accept a lot of friend requests on Facebook just because, well, I don't spend a lot of time looking at my news feed. I spend most of the time there at the TSP fan page, and that, I think, is uh, the best way for you to get in touch with me on Facebook. If you post there, I'll see it, and I will respond to you. I'm really good about the Facebook things, folks. And make sure you connect with us on our forum as well. There's a huge community of preppers there waiting to connect with you at the TSP forum. Last but not least, do consider joining the Member Support Brigade. If you do that, you get exclusive content available only to members. Somebody just sent me a very cool aquaponics manual. I'm going to make it available to everybody today. But it's one of those public domain type documents I'm going to add to the MSB as well. So remember, when you're in the MSB and you're logged in, check out all the benefits, downloads, etc. you have. I'm always adding stuff there all the time. Also, if you're going to join the MSB and you are a military, law enforcement officer, or Peace Corps, prior service or active duty, Either way, email me first. I'll give you a special discount code, uh, a national service discount code that will get you a great price. With that, let's go ahead and get into the main topic of today's show, which, of course, is your questions, comments, feedback, articles, videos, you name it, whatever you sent me that I'm able to fit on the air today. Uh, the first one is uh, straight-up financial questions. There's a lot of financial questions coming in today, probably because everybody's freaking the hell out because the Dow's plummeting again. Um, this is one of those ones that if you were just in regular mutual funds, you, you, you kind of could have saw it coming. Um, we knew that the downgrade was coming. I didn't yell and scream about it because I don't think it's going to be a long-term dive of the market. Um, we'll get into that in just a minute. I just want you guys to understand that. And, uh, you know, I've said to be in, in select stocks, and I'm not a financial advisor. I don't give them out. But I can tell you that the stocks that I'm holding didn't do real bad during this period of time. They didn't do great, but they didn't do bad either. Anyway, but I think that's what's generating all the financial questions this week. And this one starts out. Um, Hi, Jack. I've been listening to your show for a past year. My husband for the, and my husband has been listening for the past two. The tenants you're teaching have changed our lives. In the past year, we've paid three vehicles off and two student loans. We started drawing out the cash we need each month and paying with paper rather than plastic. It was a shock how much less we spent the first month, how hard it was to part with physical money at the cash register. We are one student loan and two mortgages away from debt freedom, and we've been storing food for a while, and we started a garden this year. So thank you for opening our eyes to common sense again. A little smiley face. Cool smiley face, by the way. Uh, I had a question regarding mortgage payments. In looking back at our mortgage payment history over the last three years, I could not believe the amount of money that goes to interest versus principal. We have paid down 10k of principal in the past three years, but over 50,000 in interest. How can this be legal? Is there anything we can do to, re to reduce the amount we pay in interest? I also want to get our interest rate lowered right now at 6.5%. In order for me to avoid having a shrieking fit when I call them up to request the rate to be lowered, can you recommend an attack to start off with for uh, that conversation? We've been excellent customers, never late in a payment, never under what was owed. Uh, any advice you could give would be much appreciated. I'm even prepared mentally and emotionally for the answer I think you will give me. Well, you're kind of screwed. Another smiley face. Keep up the great work, Jack. Make my long drive from work bearable. Well, I'm glad I'm helping to make your life bearable when you're driving. Doing this show for the first two years in the car made my drive bearable. So uh, we are cohorts there. Um, how is it legal? Uh, it's legal because this is how mortgages work. Remember, your mortgage is probably the typical American mortgage, which is a 30-year mortgage. And... 
in that case, when you look at your mortgage, you're going to see that right at about the year 15, uh, your interest and principal portions of your payment will be equal, and then they will grow, and you'll get greater and greater on the principal side as you head toward the end of the loan. As you get into the last couple of years of the loan, almost 100%, roughly 90-some-odd percent, of your payment will be against principal, which means in the very beginning, 90-some-odd percent of your payment is only an in interest. That's how mortgage works. Mortgage is a combination word created out of two, mort, mortality, gauge, grip. Mortgage means death grip. That's what it really means. Couldn't make it up if I wanted to. This is how mortgages work. So on your refinancing question, assuming you have good credit, assuming you've been living the way that you say that you've been living, uh, you should have no problem reducing that interest rate right now. You really should. And now would be the time to act before the interest rates really begin to go up because of the credit downgrade, if, in fact, that happens. So what you need to do is just call them up, tell them what you want to do. Now, I want to warn you about something. Um, you've reduced your mortgage by 10K in principle. If you refinance to a new 30-year loan, and they're not going to, they're not going to cut your interest rate on the current loan. You're going to have to get a new loan to cut your interest rate. Uh, but if you do that, you're going to go right back to cycle zero, right? So your interest rate's going to go down, your payment's going to go down, but you're going to go back to when you make that very first payment. If you look at your payment history and you've made about three years or 36 payments now, you'll notice that the amount that went to the principal in payment one was probably quite a bit less than payment 36. So you're going to reset that if you go to a 30-year loan. The only way that you're going to effectively cut how much of your payment is going to interest is to reduce the term of the loan. That's the only way you're going to do this. So one thing you could look at is can you refinance to a 15-year or a 20-year mortgage at a much reduced interest rate somewhere in the neighborhood of 4%. If you have solid credit right now, you have a good reputation with the lender, there's no reason they wouldn't do that for you. Um, if you have credit issues, that's going to be a different thing. Uh, one thing you can tell them on tact when you're in the situation, folks, is, well, I think we have a great payment record with you and pretty good credit. If you guys don't want to refinance this loan, I'm sure somebody else does. Uh, and try to talk to somebody inside your bank with the ability to underwrite the loan. Uh, you most likely though you don't have a local bank that you got your mortgage through. You got it through some mega giant uh, corporation, whoever you know was recommended to you by a realtor when you uh, got it. Six five is pretty high though. I think you can make this work. So you have two choices: refinance to a lower interest rate at the same thirty year term, uh, reset your your cycle. You'll pay less, and then you can just pay more if you want to. That's one thing you can do. Uh, another thing you can do is realize uh, you could, if you can't refinance, if you just pay more on your mortgage, whatever additional you pay, as long as you mark it on the payment correctly, usually there's a thing that says, how much should we apply to principal? All of it, ass clown, that's how much of the extra payment. Um, but you, you know you can do that. You can just pay more. That's, that's another way. And over time, you'll build up greater equity. And as you build up greater equity, you'll strengthen your case for refinance to a lender because you'll be borrowing less on the property. The big problem you're going to have right now is this. It's three years from when this started. Your property has probably taken a big hit in value. So you may be stuck and you may have to take that approach. That's my analysis. That's the best I can do for you. I wish I could do more, uh, but I can't because I have to be realistic with you. And that's the situation you're in. I'm not saying you're screwed. I'm just saying that you know if you are screwed, here's the other tactic you can take. Here would be an interesting way that you could do this. 
Make half your payment every two weeks. Make half your payment every two weeks. Uh, you'll never not not the first and the fifteenth. Make half your payment every two weeks. If you do that, you'll never fall behind, and you'll make about uh, roughly one extra payment every year. And that that would be another way you could do that. And you need to make sure that you at some point say apply you know make your last payment of the year apply one hundred percent additional to principal, or they're going to put it in your your uh, escrow account. So that's usually a, a conversion of the type of loan. You can usually keep the interest rate and have it set up so that you pay that way. So you can talk to your lender even if they won't do anything else. Say, well, can I do this? Can I make? Can you reestablish my payment? Uh, to be made this, you know, the same amount, uh, cut in half, and I'll have to, I'll have to make a payment every two weeks, and you might have to do direct draft for that. Some lenders will do that, some won't, but that would be another way. Or you can just do it yourself, you know? What you can do is determine how much extra you can put on every week and put it on. Right now, though, I would actually be more along this, this tactic. I would determine if I could put an extra 200 bucks, I would put that 200 bucks in an account just for the, for the mortgage. And when it hits a certain number, I would take 80% out and send it in as extra. That way you're constantly building a little stray cash on the side. All right, let's go ahead and take the next one. Um, of course, the downgrading in the credit is on everybody's mind. I'm going to say my big comments on that for the end. But I did want to read this story to you, which came out on my birthday, August 2nd, which is when they made the debt deal, which really did nothing except screw us over further, um, by Vladimir Putin. And uh, we all know who he is, right? Russian Prime Minister Vladimir Putin uh, made a speech on August 2nd, and here's what he said. Russian Prime Minister Vladimir Putin uh, on Monday accused the United States of acting as a parasite on the world economy by accumulating massive debts and threatening the global financial system. The country is, quote, the country is living in debt. It is not living within its means, shifting the weight of responsibility to other countries. And in, in that way, acting as a parasite, close quote, Putin told a group of pro-Kremlin youth in central Russia. He also suggested that Washington may have been flirting with the idea of default in order to weaken the dollar and, quote, and create a better, better conditions for exporting their goods, end quote. Quote, but they had enough common sense and responsibility, end quote, to avoid default, Russia's former president added. Putin has repeatedly criticized the United States' recent foreign exchange policy and its tendency to cover budget deficits with treasury bills and bonds held by sovereign clients such as China and Russia. The value of that paper will shrink if U.S. debt is downgraded by a major Western ratings agency, and Putin was insistent Monday that the world should be seeking new reserve currencies for trade and savings. Quote, if the U.S. encounters a systemic malfunction that affects everyone, end quote, Putin told the youth gathering there, quote, should be other reserve currencies, end quote. There's something very important here that nobody's talking about right now. Uh, first of all, Putin's right. I mean, when, when you say the country's living in debt, it's not living within its means, shifting the weight of responsibility to other nations, and in a way acting as a parasite, he's not wrong. All right, he's not wrong about that at all. Whether you like feeling that way about your country or not, it's, it's it's what we're doing. But we're also shifting the responsibility not to other countries, but to future generations of Americans. Um, of course, that's not a concern to him. His concern is what we're doing to the rest of the world, including his nation. Um, but when he says that the value of the paper will shrink if U.S. debt is downgraded by a major Western rating agency... Okay, that is exactly what 
is going on here? Everybody wants to talk about how the downgrade in our credit rating will massively increase interest rates and yada, yada, yada. But you know what it does? It makes our money worth less than it is today, tomorrow. So it devalues the dollar. And then the Fed is going to step in with QE3, print a bunch more phony money by buying up existing debt with nothing but computer entries. And then that devalues the total debt so that the government can pay off some of the debt cheaper with cheaper money. That's how the whole system works long term. That's why there is inflation in the first place. This creates an inflationary spike that the, the Fed believes it can contain with a big gobble up in QE3 and use that gobble up and transfer money over to the Treasury as profit, unquote, unquote, and then use that to pay off the debt at a cheaper level. That doesn't mean really pay down the debt. That just means make some of the short-term debt go away. That's what it really means. Um, are we a parasite on the rest of the world? That all depends on how you look at it. In some ways we are, some ways we are propping up the rest of the world. But what you're seeing with Putin, and the Chinese are pissed too, and I don't know if I have one of the stories about the Chinese uh, over this, um, but when you see, what you're seeing here is more and more of a move of the rest of the world away from the dollar as a reserve currency, and that's that's a real concern. You want really to go deep into that, tune in on Wednesday. I'm going to have Tom Kowitz from the Baldy and the Blonde Show on. We're talking all about the Federal Reserve prior defaults by the United States government. You know, this government's defaulted on its debt uh, four times since 1913, four times. And we're going to talk about that. We're going to talk about all this crap about, for the first time ever, the United States could have crap, lies, lies, lies. We're going to break it all out for you. But let's go into something totally different. I know that some of you guys get bogged down with the financial stuff. So let's talk about something that has nothing to do with finance, at least directly. Uh, this is on Science News and uh, was sent to me. By the way, uh, the first question came from Melissa. The second question came from Jeff. This one comes from Donna, and this is really a story, not a question. Uh, Science News, U.S. sets drought monitors exceptional drought record in July. This is bad for everybody in a lot of ways. We'll talk about how in a second. Let me read you what's going on, though. The percent of the contiguous United States land area experienced exceptional drought in July has reached highest levels in history of the U.S. Drought Monitor, an official at the National Drought Mitigation Center in the University of Nebraska-Lincoln said, nearly 12% of the continuous United States fell into exceptional classification during the month, peaking at 11.96% on July 12th. That level of exceptional drought has never before been seen in the Monitor's 12-year history. So that's not that long a history, though, folks. Uh, said Brian Fuchs, I guess that's how you pronounce it, F-U-C-H-S, Fuchs, a uh, UNL assistant, geoscientist, and climatologist at the NDMC. The monitor uses a ranking system that begins with D0, abnormal dryness, and moves through D1, moderate drought, D2, severe drought, D3, extreme drought, and D4, exceptional drought. Exceptional droughts impacts include widespread crop and pasture losses, as well as shortages of water in reservoir streams and wells, creating water emergencies. Currently, 18% of the country is classified as under either extreme or exceptional drought. 18% of the nation, folks. Fuchs said much of it is in the south, particularly Texas, where the entire state is experiencing drought. Three-fourths considered exceptional. 
Um, other states that are at least 85% abnormally dry in the drought, according to the report, New Mexico, 100% in drought, 48% exceptional. Louisiana, 100% abnormally dry or in drought, 33% exceptional. Oklahoma, 100% abnormally dry or in drought, 52% exceptional. South Carolina, 97% abnormally dry or in drought, 16% extreme or too exceptional. Georgia, 95% abnormally dry or in drought, 68% extreme to exceptional. Arkansas, 96% abnormally dry or in drought, 6% extreme to exceptional. I can tell you folks, it's, it's harsh in some areas here right now. In Florida, 89% abnormally dry or in drought, 20% extreme or exceptional. And you can read the rest of the article if you want to. I just gave you some parts of it there. But why am I bringing this up? Well, remember me telling you food was going to cost more? When we have things like this going on, it makes food cost more. It doesn't just make the crops that we grow cost more. It makes the animals that we feed and eat the animals cost more. Right now, I want to kind of break down to you some of the stuff that's going on because of this. Um, I drive to work every day, and I am watching the mountains around me and the forests in the mountains turn brown. Uh, it's starting to look a little bit like autumn color when the sun hits it, but then when the sun comes up enough and it lightens it, you can see it's not orange, it's brown. And I'm watching swaths across the mountains turn brown, and I'm watching rainstorms try to start up in the afternoons and just not get up into the mountains as the mountains create that rain shadow and effect. Um, when I drove to Texas uh, last week, or last week or the week before, and when I drove back, it, the main thing that I'm seeing on the highways going down I-30 toward Texas are giant bales of hay. When I came, when I drove down there, we ended up behind a big hay convoy, and I ended up with hay like all over my truck. I had like a couple pieces of it on the antenna. Um, why do you think that is? It's because the cattle that are normally grass-fed down there, the farmers and ranchers are having to buy hay. Uh, what will this do short term to the price of meat? It'll probably cut it. You know why? Um, there'll be a glut of beef. Farmers will start putting cattle to market quicker to reduce the herd size, but then long term that'll create a shortage. So you see beef prices go up. Uh, this is why we need to figure out how to make more efficient use of our water. All right? This is you know this again. I always say I'm not trying to say polar bears. I'm trying to say us. At the same time this is going on, we're having some towns in Texas that have been, you know, didn't care if it rained because they've been taking water out of the Ogala Aquifer. Um, basically, it's a sea. It's an underground sea that ranges from almost Canada to parts of South Texas. And there's billions of gallons down there, so much that it should last forever, but it's not. Because basically, the, the, shore, the underground shoreline, if you can imagine a giant lake, something that huge... And you can imagine the shoreline shoreline shrinking. The shorelines are shrinking past some of these towns now. These shallower, think about a typical lake that has branches, right? You know, like instead of just being a round lake, it's got all this curved edge effect, and that's how this thing's built. And you've got like a branch, like a creek branch that goes way back in. When the lake starts to drop, some of those branches dry completely up. That's what's going on in some of these towns. There's a real crisis here. And rain alone isn't going to fix it. I mean, that's, that's, that's a fact. And I'm trying to use it to learn something. I drive to work, you know, about five days a week. Sometimes I do two shows and I take a day and I don't come into the office. I handle things from home. But as I drive in, I look around and I see trees wilting. I see trees browning. And then I see areas where the vegetation is still lush. And I'm evaluating what about that area is allowing this, this particular vegetation to thrive. Is it the variety of vegetation? Is it the shade? 
Uh, one area I drive through, there's kind of like a low spot, and then I go back up and I come down and come off of my, my little side road down onto the main road. And as I go by that spot, there's a neighbor of mine who has about, I think, 50 acres, and he has about a four-acre pond. And that pond has held water fairly well through this drought. And even though this place where the road dips is very far from the pond, it's extremely lush through there. And you know what's going on? The evaporation off of the pond is raising the humidity in the area. It's condensing in the low-lying area. And the condensation drip alone is keeping things alive. This is why I'm big into permaculture. If we want to solve these kinds of problems, we need to figure out how to make more efficient use of water. Because remember that guy, that Yakuba Sagadola that I talked about a couple weeks ago that's doing xi farming in the desert of the Sahal? He would come to this drought that we're having in North America right now and look at the, look at it and go, what are you talking about? You guys have so much water. You have so much rain. There's better ways to do these things, but we're not going to do it anytime soon. The only thing you can do in the short term is you need to be storing food, you need to be growing your own food, and you need to be coming up with your own ways to make the most efficient use of water that you can. All right, next up today... Uh, Kyle from Washington sends me this link, and it's a blog on Reuters, and it says, The phony as a $3 bill debt deal. Um, uh, Greg Easterbrook uh, wrote this blog, and uh, it's pretty interesting. I'm going to read just a little bit of it for you. Um, maybe Washington can start paying invoices with $3 bills because the, quote, dramatic, unquote, agreement to reduce the national debt is as phony as a $3 bill. Weeks of nearly round-the-clock negotiations among the White House and Senate have led to a historic debt deal that consists almost entirely of fluff, double-speak, and empty promises. The politicians involved get to claim victory, uh, and presumably will be rewarded with votes and campaign donations from the special interest groups that pretty much across the board were spared any pain. Young people in the United States once again are hammered. If the deal becomes law, the national debt will rise again dramatically while there's no guarantee any cut will materialize. And the bill for this recklessness was we passed, uh, will be passed along to those under age 30. Consider the closest thing to a tangible savings in the agreement is $1 trillion in caps on discretionary programs spread over 10 years. The new national debt ceiling allows borrowing to rise by $2.4 trillion with a plan to pay back less than half the amount over 10 years. Get it? A huge surge in spending, now called a spending cut, while actual cuts don't take effect for over a decade. And that's setting aside that, and, and that's setting aside that inflation means the present value of money spent today sharply exceeds the value of smaller cuts many years into the future. In December of 2010, the White House and Congress agreed to 930 billion in fresh deficit spending as the fourth stimulus plan enacted since the 2008 recession. When the special interest groups say they want a second stimulus, remember we've had four. So 930 billion in extra borrowing right away is followed by a plan about the same amount and saving years in the future. This is what Democrats and Republicans alike today are calling fiscal discipline or draconian cuts. If you emptied your bank account today but declared that you would become careful about money 10 years in the future, people would laugh at you. It keeps going. If you want to read the rest, you can, but you get the point. The debt deal was bullshit, just like I told you it would be. Uh, the down-to-the-wire moments that came with it were bullshit, just like I told you it would be. There is no way to fix this economy now other than a rebasing of the currency. It's what must eventually happen. Another default. They won't call it a default. 
They'll call it a improvement to the monetary policy, a shift in monetary policy. They'll call it something like that, but it will be a default. Again, if you want to know more about the past defaults, Wednesday, tune in as Tom and I dissect them for you. But I just think it's important that you guys realize that everything that you was talked about, everything that and I know some of you guys, man, you were emailing me all. Why don't we get behind these this this caucus and and push for these cuts and we got to do this thing and you know, man, this is an actual and I didn't even. Even do anything with it. Why? Because I know it's crap. Because I know how the monetary system works, folks. And this, the reason I bring this stuff up at this point, when we can look back and see all of the crap that went on, all the lies that went on, you think about the months that you listen to this stuff, Fox News, CNN, MSNBC, the Get It Done campaign that a local station here did, and all this other crap, right? Um, it was all bull. And you would have been much better taking your time and energy and spending it building a garden or a water catchment system or working a second job and buying a piece of real estate or anything other than listening to these people for one precious moment of your time. And I, it, I, there's a lot more of it coming over the next couple uh, uh, months. In fact, I would say over the next year and a half, right up to election time, the load of bullshit that you're going to get out of your TV and your radio is going to reach proportions it's never reached before. If we could actually channel it into true bullshit and bury it in the ground and convert it to biogas, those clowns are going to produce enough bullshit that the methane from it could solve our energy problem all by itself. Um, just saying. Uh, let's go into a, a different question here. Um, it does kind of tie into this. Like I said, there's a lot of financial stuff coming in this week because people are scared again. Uh, hey, Jack, buddy, I could write down a, write a downright dissertation on how awesome and informational your podcast is. But more on that later, suffice to say, I love the show, man. I feel a little bad in asking because I know you probably get and have answered a lot of similar questions. Regardless, I'm going to ask here it goes. In your opinion, what is the best plan of action for my 401k savings, seeing as I am ending my employment, going to college, and have a window to do something with it? This is where you say, damn it, Daniel, I'm not a banker. Uh, Kind of. Info, I'm 26 and married with one child, debt-free with somewhat low income, about half a year worth of food storage preps, have a meager 1000 in savings, and have about 3000 in this TRP blended fund 401k thing, which I know nothing about. I also have two to five years of college paid for with grants. That's the right way to go to college, Daniel. Good for you. And uh, ahead of me. And, well, logic says there will most likely be a rebasing of our currency. Seems quite sound. So I have about zero faith in the stock market. Long story short, I think I'd rather have my hands on primary wealth of some sort rather than imaginary number crap in a monetary tertiary wealth system. But I'm open. I hear Roth IRAs are good. I think I could roll it over to plain old money market account. Or I'm thinking I might be willing, depending on how severe the penalties are, to take it out and invest in primary wealth i.e. land, food storage, silver, gold, etc. Any any information would be appreciated. Thank you, Jack, Daniel, Utah. Okay, here's the thing. It's three grand, dude, right? It's only three grand. So it's not something that is going to make or break you either way. And you have to decide yourself what you want to do with it. But let me break down the thing for you. Um, you're going to pay a penalty of 10%, so there's 300 bucks, right? And you're going to pay taxes on all the money because this is not a Roth IRA, uh, 401k. I'm, I'm positive of that uh, based on the fact you didn't say it was. And if, you, if it was, you would know it. So uh, you're going to pay tax on three, three grand as income. Uh, you have a relatively low income, which means you don't pay a lot of income tax in the first place. So let's say you're going to pay about $500 in taxes 
on it in real taxes. They'll, they'll probably do withholding up front if you ask them to, which is a good idea for you. So that's going to be about 800 bucks. So you're going to get about 2200 bucks if you cash this thing in and the rest goes to the tax man and the, 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 the cheater bullshit 10% penalty, uh, just because they take it because they can. Um, so you can end up with 2200 bucks. If you, if I gave you $2,200 in cash right now, what would you do with it? A little Jeopardy music. If I had some in the background, I'd play it for you. If you don't know, if you don't already see, this is what I would do with it. Leave it tax deferred. Um, if you try to roll it into a Roth IRA, since it's not a Roth account, and you're going from conventional Roth, you're going to have to pay some penalties on that. It's probably not worth it because it ain't that much dadgum money. So what you do is you roll it to a conventional IRA, and then you can invest it in any damn thing you want to. You can probably set up an E-Trade account and roll it into an a, a IRA at E-Trade, and then you can simply look up whatever you want within it, use the funds within it to buy anything, but still only three grand. If you're really worried about the dollar being rebased, as I've been predicting, and it's worth worrying about, um, one way you could keep it deferred and do something with it would be to invest in a gold or a silver ETF. You're not going to get that much uh, shares in something like that right now with only three grand, but it would be kind of a, a, a decent play. I think metals are up a bit higher than they should be right now because of the alarm and nobody understands what I'm going to, what I'm going to tell you at the end right now, uh, the show today about how the market's actually going to do fairly well throughout the rest of the year. Um, no one gets that, so people are going to panic. Um, so you might want to hold on that buy. You might want to just go to a money market in your, in your, uh, in your, you know, your IRA and wait and figure out some things you want to buy. Some solid plays are always a good dividend producing stocks, Johnson & Johnson, uh, Procter Gamble, places like that. Again, I don't make trading recommendations, folks. Um, but those are some ways that you could be a little bit creative with your money right now. But if you know exactly what kind of a hard asset you would put that 2200 bucks into, uh, you get the money out and do that with it. But if you don't know, don't make the decision now because I'm going to tell you why. If you pull it out now and you don't know exactly what you're going to do with it, you're going to spend it. You're going to put it in your savings and you're going to look at it and you're going to want something over these next couple of years while you're going to school and you're going to be living a little bit, uh, a little bit more difficultly during this time, even though you're not paying for school because you have the grants. Uh, you're not going to be working as much. You're not going to have as much income and what have you and you're going to want something. Your kids are want something. The cash is there. It's easy to get. You're going to spend it. So until you know what type of hard asset, leave it in there. It's still only three grand. If it doubles, it's only six grand. At your income level, you can get the money out any time in the next few years and really give up about the same percentage. So things might change where you want to leave it in there. Getting it back in is difficult. Leaving it in is, is easy. If you get to a point where you're making additional contributions, do not contribute to this one. You're too young to be wasting your time with a conventional IRA. Set up a new one in a Roth status and contribute to that. That's my answer for you, Daniel. Um, Chris sends me a link and it says, Are you kidding me? No, to drive a tractor or a combine on a farm, Dot wants you to have a CDL. Here's the story. I mean, this is from a lot of people today. And uh, I'm not going to read the whole thing, but what I want to tell you is this article that's out, this one's on Pat Dollar, and there's plenty of other places where this is out. Um, there's this new thing going on where the uh, Department of Transportation is saying that you need a commercial driver's license in order to operate and on this article, I'm going to read it to you, any farming equipment. The agency is going to accomplish this by reclassifying all farm vehicles and implements as commercial motor vehicles. Okay. Um, when I saw this, when I saw this initially, 
I immediately said to myself, I, this doesn't work for me. Something is wrong with this. Okay? Something doesn't make sense with this, and here's why. I don't, if it's a, if I'm driving a combine on my farm, I'm not on a road. I don't need a license to do that. I'm on private property. So, I knew there had to be something here. And what it actually appears in far, the Farmgate blog seems to be getting the story right. And this has been around for a while. This goes back to June 22nd, which tells me the rumor mill is churning this up. I do think this is a bad thing, but this is a lot like, remember, the Food Modernization Act, and they were going to outlaw your garden and take away your tomatoes and not let you trade seeds. Anybody traded seeds, grown a tomato, or had a backyard garden lately? Yeah. So that was all hype. So what's the hype here? This law, and it is stupid, don't think I'm defending the government, this law affects when you take all the stuff and you put it into a truck, and that truck drives on a road and goes to like a grain elevator, crosses state lines, or things like that. That does make sense that the ass clowns would do it. And basically the way this has worked, and I didn't know this, is if you had a truck that was just for transporting grain from your farm to another, to another grain facility, and that was all it was used for, and it was only used seasonally for that effect, you didn't need a CDL to drive it, so you didn't need additional insurances to drive it. And farmers were able to get together collectively and share their trucks, share their land, what have you. And in harvest season, truck all that grain off to distribution centers without a CDL. Okay, And you can say whether that's right or wrong. Government's saying that's wrong because these guys are using very, very heavy trucks on the highway system. And uh, you know if they're going across state lines, clearly whether they should do it or not, doesn't you know? I'm not someone I'm debating here. The federal government sh- would have the authority to regulate the commerce because it's interstate. So if I harvested in Kansas and uh, uh, drove across the uh, the state line to let's say a, a, you know, I'm near the southern border and I drive across to, to Oklahoma, uh, or I'm you know on the the east border and I drive across to Missouri because that's where my grain collection facility is. That that's interstate commerce. So that if you were going to do that, you would need a CDL. Of course, the ass clowns aren't happy with that because it doesn't really get them as much money as they want out of this. And this is a money grab. This is making these guys do this so they can get more money out of them. Um, so what they're saying now is even if you drive, you're in Oklahoma, and you drive to a grain elevator and you deliver it there and you go back to your farm and you never cross state lines, if that grain is left whole, shipped out of that grain elevator to another state, before it's you know churn- turned into something other than grain, it's still interstate commerce and you still need a CDL. So this is going to put a motor burden on our farmers who have enough burdens already. Further commercialized farming put the biggest burden on small farmers. Uh, it's just another way to you know, centralize farming and put more control into big companies like ConAgra and Monsanto and the Department of Agriculture and take away more autonomy from the farms. It's crap. But it's not a CDL to drive a combine on a farm. If it is, show it to me in, in the actual proposed legislation. Don't show me somebody's blog because I can't see that. And if they do that, if they do that, then there is a huge constitutional problem because the only reason that you can justify a driver's license of any kind, even just a, a standard driver's license, is that you're driving a vehicle on a road built with public money for use by the general public. If I have a 50-acre or 500-acre or 5,000-acre farm that I maintain the roads and the pathways and everything on myself, that is mine. It is not the government's. 
and transportation on there is subject to whatever I decide. So if I want to have a bunch of five-year-old kids running around driving combines, unless I clearly and recklessly endanger them in some way, it's my business. You know, unless I'm violating child labor laws. But if I want to let my five-year-old get up on the combine and steer it, tough. I can do that. You know, if I don't want a driver's, if I have a thousand acres and I have, you know, cars and motorcycles and all kinds of stuff like that, I want to drive my brains out on my property, I can. I can do that right now. When, when these, you know, sovereign citizen types, the, the other kind, say you don't need a driver's license to drive on a highway, they're wrong. You do. Try not doing it and see what happens. And that's the only way government can justify that. Say, I have a right to travel. You have a right to travel. But you don't have a right to operate a motor vehicle on a public street at the endangerment of your fellow motorists without some kind of uh, assurance that you're competent at what you're doing so you don't kill a bunch of people. right? But if you want to do it on your own property, you can. So I think there is something real here and there's something hyped here. And I think it's very important that we suppress the hype and talk about the real problem because I keep telling you guys, and God, it drives me so crazy. When you latch on to the sensationalized nonsense You empower the people that are actually trying to do the real thing that's the real problem. And it gets done, and we all look like a bunch of idiots. So, if I'm wrong here, and I'm open to being wrong, I've done as much resources, research as I could yesterday on this, but if I'm, and I can't get the exact proposed legislation, if you can show me in there where it says to operate a vehicle on private property, right, you need a CDL, or to operate a combine during harvest, or anything other than a transportation vehicle moving the grain. Show me, and we'll, we'll talk about it, and we'll make a big stink about it. Otherwise, let's focus on what they're actually doing. They're closing this loophole that was set up to minimize the burden on the farmer, and that's the problem. All right, let's take another one. Well, with all this seriousness, let's go into a little bit of humor here. Justin sends this one in, and uh, I found this humorous. And this is on a site called... Regretsy, I get Regretsy, Regretsy forums uh, posted on their blog out of their forums, and it's by Aunt B. And uh, here we go. I was helping out to the backyard. I was heading out to the backyard this morning when I saw a neighbor that lives in the house behind ours in my yard. He is putting leaves from one of the, my plants in a shopping bag. I yelled, "Hey!" And he grabbed another plant, stripped it up, taking all the leaves off. By the time I got outside, he had done he had done two more plants, shoved all the leaves into his bag. By the time I got halfway to him, he ran off carrying the bag. I had inspected the damage. He had stripped or broken off all of my okra plants. They hadn't started producing yet. I think he thought they were not okra. <laughs> Update number one, an undercover cop just stopped by and he took my report. He was going to tell the neighbor to stay off my property, but no one answered the door. He said that there was no proof uh, he took the leaves and that there was no value to them, so there was no way to charge him. But we both had a good laugh over it. He took photos and said he was sure his fellow officers would laugh too, and there's a few of these okra leaves left, and the plants have been stripped pretty hard. So obviously, folks, if you've ever looked at an okra leaf, it has kind of this shape with you know this lobing that sort of kind of in a weird way resembles a pot leaf. So apparently this guy thought he was stealing pot. Update number two. I just got a knock on the door. The police officer stopped by to let me know that my neighbor was arrested. Trying to trade a baggie of chopped green leaves for a case of beer at a liquor store a few blocks away. 
According to the store owner, the guy told him, well, these are high-quality homegrown marijuana. And when he was arrested, he claimed he stole them from my garden where I had them hidden in a flower bed. So I guess he was trying to cut a deal. Look, man, if you let me off on the charge, I'll tell you where I got the dope. Okay. The police officer that came by was a different one from earlier, but had already heard the story about the okra thief. He went out with a flashlight, looked at the okra, and took more pictures and laughed a lot. Uh, he asked if he could have some okra leaves to take with him and a tomato from the garden for his dinner. I complied with the officer's request. So, uh, first of all, I don't know why you couldn't have just tried the guy with trespassing from the beginning, but getting him busted at the liquor store trying to trade okra leaves for beer, that's just great. And I guess... You know, the one solace we can take in, in the criminal activity is that, in general, in general, criminals are some, criminals are some pretty stupid people. Uh, next question. This is a gardening one. comes in from Sherry. Sherry says, Jack, glad to hear your bag garden is doing well. Uh, garden Supply Company is selling a potato bag garden. Have you ever tried it? What do you think? What do you think of it if you have? I have very limited space and I'm going to start container gardening next year. Would like to know if it's worth the money. Thanks, Sherry in Northwest Georgia. Well, Sherry in Northwest Georgia, um, I looked it up. I had to go find it because you didn't give me a link. Folks, whenever you want to know about a product, it will help me greatly if you'll send me a link in your email. But it wasn't too hard to find. I put in Gardener's Supply Company potato bag and uh, found it really, really simple. These look pretty cool. They're not real, real big. I'd kind of like them to be a little bit bigger considering what they're for. Uh, but they're basically a, a fairly heavy-duty material, uh, similar to the stuff they make landscaping fabric out of, you know, the stuff to block weeds and keep them down. And the way you do it is you fold down the outside, and then you plant your potatoes in there, and then when they start to grow, you fill it up a little bit, and eventually you you know unroll it so that it comes up higher, and you keep doing that until the, the thing's filled. And with that, that's like hilling a potato plant. Potato plants are interesting. As the uh, as the the top part, the green part grows. If you cover that with dirt, it'll send out more roots, and t and the roots will form the tubers. So the more you create a mound activity for your potatoes, the greater your potato yield per area will be, per square foot, per square meter, per acre, however you want to define it. So what these bags do is allow you an easy way to you know start out with a little bit of dirt and keep adding it and build up a fairly good harvest of potatoes. They look kind of cool. Um, I think that you would maybe be better off doing what I'm doing, which is growing them in tires. You get an old set of tires, you get some pretty big old truck tires that are destined to go to a landfill, and you get a razor knife, you cut the sidewalls out, that way they won't get dirt caught up in the sides. You lay one on the ground, you do this, when you get to a certain level, you just add another tire, and you can go three, four tires high with this, and get even a much better yield. But these, these, these bags look like they would work fairly well. There's a slideshow that I looked at, I looked at the material that they're, they're made out of, um, there's an 18-inch one and a 25-inch one. If I was going to do potatoes in these, I would definitely go with the 25-inch one. Here's why I lean toward the tires. Yeah, I can use those tires forever. I mean, literally forever. Uh, one of the big problems we have with tires is what to do with them when we're done run, running our cars on them. Uh, there was a concept called recapping at one time where basically you just replaced the... Uh, the tread part of the tire so we could reuse the tire. Yeah, and a lot of people had accidents because they blew the hell up. It doesn't work for you. We well, can't revulcanize the rubber that way. Um, so then we can shred them up and put them into concrete as filler. And there's a lot of things we can do with them. But basically, it damn near lasts forever. 
And because of that, we don't know what to do with them. Well, we can turn that into a good thing if we build something like an earth chip out of tires because the damn thing will last forever. Or if we build a potato growing system out of tires or anything else we can think of to do with them. So it's a longevity issue because one of the things that really caught my attention here was bags can be reused a second year. And that was a sales pitch to me. You could use them twice, which probably means they won't last a third year. So if I look at the price here, a jumbo one, the, the biggest one I can get, uh, is, let's see, colorful and, that's colorful and black. If I wanted the black one, cause that'd match my tires, right? The jumbo one's $16.99. If I want a colorful one, it's $18.99. So basically, if I buy the 18, let's say 18 bucks roughly, uh, $9 a year is what I'm paying for the containment system. If I get junk tires, I can go buy a tire store and say, I need some junk tires, some big round ones. I'd like probably a set of four that are all the same size. And you can even tell the guy what you're going to do with them because that'll, you know, alleviate his fear that you're going to pitch them somewhere that he, they might come back and he's going to get in trouble for them. Uh, he'll probably go, sure, I've got some here. Or, you know what, I'll put some aside from you. We always have big trucks coming in for new tires. Uh, next set that are junk and can't be sold as used tires, I'll put aside for you. I'll give me your phone number, what have you. Get them for free. Free lasts forever. Cost money lasts for two years. So that's why I like the idea of the tires better for this application. You could also build a box system with straw bale uh, or straw and grow t t potatoes in that, the way Bill Mollison recommends. But uh, if you're going to do it this way, I'd go with tires, and that is my particular reasoning behind it. Um, Here's the next one. This comes in from Carl. Carl says, uh, Jack, I wanted to find out what you thought about the story. Latest issues of Military Times all include this article on a defense b business proposal for changing military retirement. You can re read more via the link, but to get the gist of it, they want to remove the option for retirement at 20 years of act active service, substituting a mandatory contribution 401k plan that can be drawn upon at the age of 5760. Uh, most AD members uh, and retirees that I've talked to, including myself, are fairly outraged at this prospect, figuring this might be something to write your congressman about. I know I am. Here's a link to the full story. Um, here's the, the facts. Um, when we look at and we say we need to cut entitlement spending, you might not like the word entitlement applied to this, but a pension from the government is considered an entitlement, right? And that would include military pensions. So when we talk about cutting entitlement uh, pensions, we need to talk about cutting military pension costs as well. Um, for those that don't know, and it's it, there's a lot of risk involved, but let's also understand some people join the Air Force and push pencil for 20 years uh, and never are in harm's way, or join the Army and do the same thing, or even the Marine Corps do the same thing. There's always a potential to be in danger. I don't belittle anybody's service. Again, I was a mechanic, not an infantryman, uh, and I, you know, I'm proud of my service. Uh, I'm pr proud of going to airborne school. I'm proud of uh, serving during during the first Gulf War on you know on foreign soil. So. Um, I'm proud of all that, so I'm not putting anybody down here, but the reality is this, and I, don't, I think a lot of people know this, I, 18 years old, you can join the military, go off, spend 20 years in the military, it's a huge sacrifice, but that means at 38 years old, you can quote, retire, unquote, and that means you get a full retirement benefit for the rest of your life. That includes medical benefits, that includes everything, and when we look at some of these city workers that are doing 30 years or more to get a retirement, we say, hey, this is excessive. We do need to fairly look over here and say, is there a way this could be changed? However, I don't think they'll do this 
to the existing serving member. I think they will change this in the future. And when they do, they'll do something similar to what they're proposing here, but they will grandfather the active duty serving uh, soldier. They will also probably do some kind of a cutoff. They'll say if you've been in 10 years or more at this point, you fall into the, you get the original uh, agreement, or 10 years or less, you don't. I don't like that, but they probably will. And here's why they're going to do it. Here's why they're going to do it. This will be another version of the QMP program that they did back in the 90s, early 90s, when they decided to down, you know, reduce the size of the force, uh, forces. They are going to be bringing guys home soon. It's going to happen, finally, uh, even though it was promised years ago. Right? You know, the guy was going to come in, he was going to fix it all and bring people home and close Gitmo and uh, eventually they're going to come home. And uh, they're going to need to downsize the military. And if you tell a guy that's been in five years, hey, you're not getting that 20-year retirement, you can start contributing this thing, maybe they'll convert a portion of it, and that might be how they do it is prorate it out. Uh, you know, you got five years in, you'll get a five-year version of it. So now you get 25% of your retirement if you stay in for 20, and now you convert over to this thing. That might be the solution they come up with. A lot of guys that would stay for 20 or stay for 10 thinking about staying for 20, you're going to say, screw it, I want out. So they're going to force guys out with this, it, uh, the short-term guys, to keep them going long-term. Bring in new guys. Uh, a new order and under a new program and whether it's good or bad or indifferent, you know, we can debate that. But you do have to think about the fact that we have people coming out of the military at 20 years. You know, and I thought about doing it. Drawing a check, not a huge check, but a check, generally better than an average Social Security check for 30 years, 40 years, 50 years, people who are able to go back to work. I'm not saying it's wrong, and I'm saying that the people they've already brought in, when you join the military, you swear the oath, this is the contract. You have a an enlist. I don't know if people realize this either. When you enlist, you get a contract. It says what you must do and what they must do. This would be a contract breach to do this to our active serving members. Um, and so they're going to have to figure out, so, and the public will go flipping nuts. But how do you get something unpopular approved and accepted? You float it as though it's going to affect everybody. And then you say, oh, you're right, we can't do this. And then you pull it back and you offer your secondary solution. Oh, it'll only affect new recruits who know what they're getting going in as a compromise. And then everybody goes, oh, okay. Where if you just came out with that initially, hey, we're going to change the way we do this. It's not going to if you initially if you came out and said we're not going to do this to our existing serving uh, we're not even going to do it to short term existing serving we are only going to do this with new recruits going forward everybody what that's crap that's not the way to do things this is the military it's different but when they do it this way they'll swip, switch over the court of public opinion the only people who are really going to be pissed off about this are going to be army recruiters navy recruiters marine recruiters air force recruiters and uh coast guard recruiters because it's going to make the job of recruiting the career minded individual much more difficult it's not 20 and out because that's been the guys that stay 20 and leave that's been one of the really big payoffs i can get a full retirement i've got medical coverage i've got px privileges i'm not saying they're not earned but that's 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 the the prize and now I can go back, I'm only 38, 40 years old on average, right? I can go back to work in the private sector, and I can draw my military retirement, and I can make a full-time income. And I can work another 20 years, and I'm only 58. And at that point, I can go into an early retirement, 
much more comfortably than a lot of other people can. Now, to do that for 20 years, I have to know that I'm a target. I've got a bullseye on me, even if I am the guy in the Air Force pushing the pencil. Wearing the uniform makes you a target, especially when you're overseas. So that's what I think is going on here. But the real thing to understand is when you guys are out there saying, we need to cut, we need to cut, we need to cut, I agree. Just understand that means everything gets cut, even the things you like. Um, next one up today comes in from Matt. Matt says, hi, Jack, I'm a law student and was surprised to see this article in the ABA Journal. And uh, this is really cool. This is kind of an uplifting thing and then a downgrading thing at the same time. And what Matt sent me is an article on the ABA Journal, the Law News Now, not where you'd expect to see this, um, plowing over, can urban farming save Detroit and other declining cities? Will the law allow it? And let me read a little bit to you. It's a warm day in April, and Skip Wiener is showing off the crown jewel of gardens that the urban tree connection has created out of 29 vacant lots in the poverty-ridden Haddington neighborhood on Philadelphia's west side. The site tucked away in the center of a block of 60 homes was once used as a construction firm for storage when Wiener, the founder of the director of the UTC, was first alerted about the property by a local block captain. It was overgrown and riddled with industrial waste and a haven for drug dealers and prostitutes. And the upshot is that they've uh, you know, kind of really turned things around. There's some stuff going on in Detroit that's very similar and some legal issues that are coming up. I want to talk about those for a sec. So moving over to Detroit and what's going on there. Sitting on a time bomb, for a city like Detroit, which was once the colossus of U.S. automotive industry, it might at first seem absurd to think that, that a key to changing its fortunes might be to bring some more agriculture inside the city limits. The argument that, quote, promoting agriculture in a once world-leading industry will not return the economy to its prior status, end quote, is familiar to John E. McGock, uh, a professor at Wayne State University Law School in Detroit and an expert on land use and urban development. Quote, you'd have to be an idiot to think it would. That's not the point. The point is, can agriculture at least provide some kind of interim use of what is now unproductive land, end quote. Researchers at Michigan State University in East Lansing maintain the answer is yes. Their 2010 study, Growing Food in the City, the Production Potential of Detroit's Vacant Land, it's a PDF, by the way, and worth reading, concludes that such efforts could supply local residents with more than 75% of their vegetables and more than 40% of their fruits, a boon in a, for a city where many residents live in food deserts. Uh, that's a tempting position for a city like Detroit where the population dropped from 951,000 in 2000 to 713,000 in 2010, according to a census figures. Detroit has lost more than a million residents since 1950 when its population of 1.85 million made it to the nation's fifth largest city. It now ranks 18th and continues to shrink. But as Detroit loses residents, it gains vacant lots, which now number some 31,000. There are also more than 400 community gardens and farms operating throughout the city. Most, however, exist in the shady side of the law because Detroit zoning ordinance does not recognize agriculture as a permitted use. And that, in turn, is an unintended consequence of a state law designed to protect rural farms from urban sprawl. The Michigan Right to Farm Act was passed in 1981 during a period when the borders of the state cities were rapidly expanding into rural areas. Farms often found themselves suddenly subject to urban zoning codes 
that restricted agricultural activities, or the targets of nuisance suits filed by new neighbors objecting to the ordinary noises and aromas around farming. So they build a city around the farm. The farmer spreads the cow shit in the spring, and the residents complain, hey, he shouldn't be able to do that. So they pass this law. The act renders commercial farms immune to nuisance lawsuits and exempt from local zoning codes as long as they comply with the standards set by the Michigan Agricultural Commission. In other words, it's the state business, not the city's business. And it gets zoned as agricultural because that's what it is. But these standards were set for a lightly populated rural areas, not cheek to jowl urban populations where the normal activities of rural agriculture might threaten the quality of life residents accustomed to the smells and, uh, of residents unaccustomed to the smells and sounds of the farm. In other words, it's much better. It's much healthier. It's much better of a quality of life for drug dealers to have their crack whores and be shooting at each other and throwing their crap in the street than to have a plowed up field, right? Okay. Um, If Detroit passes ordinance recognizing agriculture as a permitted use, the Right to Farm Act would automatically kick in and render any attempts to set standards different from those of the Agricultural Commission invalid. The city could petition the commission for an exemption, but according to the law, the commission may only grant exemptions on the basis of adverse impacts on the environment and health. Left out would be impacts on property values, aesthetics, and the comfort surrounding residents. Um, so basically, Detroit's saying this, we're not sure what we're going to do, um, and we're concerned that if we have too many of these urban farms, it'll you know damage the quality of life and the property values in Detroit. I have this to say for any city official of Detroit, county officials in the county that Detroit's in, or anybody in any urban environment that's thinking this way, are you freaking stupid? Are you freaking stupid? Are you freaking kidding me? You're going to take your crappiest locations, bulldoze these crack whorehouses, put in farms, start turning things green, making things beautiful, feeding your people in your city, and you think that's going to devalue your property? How much more devalued can you get, Detroit? How freaking retarded is this guy? Really. This is the same nonsense that's been screwing things up for years. People that are thinking uh, about things in the old world view. Detroit, let me explain it to you guys. You're not going to return to being the automotive capital of the world. The unions have killed you and your best and your brightest and your people with a future, but not all of them. I don't want to offend anybody there that is great, but a lot of the really good people left. Do you think the poor people left? Do you think the, the, the person who was just struggling to get by that still has their job left? Or do you think the people that were the, the creators of jobs, the wealthy, the affluent left? That's who left. That's who left. They're not coming back. It's easier to go build somewhere else than to try to turn it back on. It's over. It's done. Whatever's left can be improved and, and made to work, and there, there's going to be probably automotive business in Detroit for a long time to come, but it's never coming back. This is a solution. And it amazes me how retarded people become the longer they're involved in either high you know, university positions where all they do is sit around and think. You think they get smarter, they get dumber. Or in government, government service, especially in the, in the you know this type of city ordinance type world, just seems to rot the brain. Um, anyway, there are cities that are embracing this, and there are cities that are like you know afraid that things are going to get on. I got a solution for you though, Detroit. How about this? How about you guys pass a law uh, that allows urban farming and sets reasonable standards within your city? instead of letting it go over to the state for general agriculture. Why don't you create 
a very inexpensive, very affordable, like $10 an acre, acre permitting system, and you don't send a bunch of ass clowns around to check on things, and you set some reasonable guidelines, problem solved. And all of you freaking people with all your giant uh, university brains can stop worrying about the time bomb you think that Detroit's sitting on. Detroit's not sitting on a time bomb because of urban farming. Detroit was sitting on a time bomb because they were so invested in one industry that was in decay, and the bomb went boom a long time ago. Look around you. Okay, look around you. That's what already happened. The bomb already went off. I, I can't believe the retardism inside government minds. Get close to the end here. How about a little bit more humor for you? Um, this one comes in, joke for Jack from Terry. Terry says, A, the number of physicians in the United States is 700,000. B, accidental deaths caused by physicians per year is 120,000. Accidental deaths per physician, 0.171. Statistics courtesy of the United States Department of Health and Human Services. Now think about this. A, guns. The number of gun owners in the U.S. is 80 million. Yes, 80 million. B, the number of accidental gun deaths per year, all age groups, is about 1,500. C, the number of accidental deaths per gun owner is .0000188. Statistics courtesy of the FBI. So, so statistically, doctors are approximately 9,000 times more dangerous than gun owners. Fact, not everyone has a gun, but almost everyone has at least one doctor. This means you're over 9,000 times more likely to be killed by a doctor as by a gun owner. Please alert your friends to this alarming threat. We must ban doctors before this com gets completely out of hand. Out of concern for the public at large, we withheld statistics on lawyers for fear the shock would cause people to panic and seek medical attention, increasing the death rate. Terry, <laughs> I love that one. And it's true, folks. Those are real figures. Uh, 9,000 more time, 9,000 times more likely to be killed by a doctor than a gun owner. I think if we, if we included criminal statistics there instead of accidental statistics, uh, there would be quite a few more deaths by gun owners cr committed in the United States, but I, I would still say it's probably four to five thousand times more likely to die of a doctor making a mistake than somebody shooting you in the ass. Alright, next one up here. It's it, This is from David. He says it's starting to happen. County is deciding on bankruptcy. And there's a, new, a, a link on CBS News uh, about Montgomery County, Alabama, uh, deciding whether or not to go into bankruptcy over their sewer systems. If uh, if you read TRTAM.com, that's my blog on money that I don't post to to a lot, but I post important things to it, uh, you would have known about this a long time ago. I posted on this on July 26th, so that's about two weeks ago, three weeks ago. Uh, Jefferson County, Alabama, bankruptcy or bailout. And uh, I just wanted to point out that it, it is starting. He is right. Uh, we had uh, Central Falls, Rhode Island went bankrupt. Uh, we have... Um, uh, we have... Uh, Jefferson County, Alabama now uh, nearing bankruptcy. Uh, we also had Har Harrisburg, Pennsylvania threatening bankruptcy, and the state basically said, if you declare bankruptcy, we're going to screw you out of your state funds. And basically the state set, a set up a solution where Harrisburg, basically you guys can go bankrupt at the end of 2012 after the election. Uh, that's, that's there. Um, and Pontiac, Michigan is in receivership. So technically, even though it's not called bankruptcy, Pontiac, Michigan is bankrupt. It's starting to happen. Exactly what I said was going to happen is starting to happen. The municipalities are beginning to default. 
Everybody's saying it's only this little crap hole town in Rhode Island that's not that big, or it's, yeah, it's Jefferson County, but it's only about their sewer system and they can pay the rest of their bills, and you know, on and on and on. But the reality is it's starting to come. The mainstream media is going to downplay this. They'll make a big deal out of the individual story, but they'll downplay the big picture. By the time people figure out that this is a problem, it will already have devastated the economy, and that's when we'll be into the situation where we're probably going to have to rebase our currency. That is probably late 2012 to 2013 if the current administration has its way. I believe the current administration wants this to happen. I believe that this is part of their goal to change America forever and move it into a more socialist economy uh, and redistribute wealth, not from the wealthiest Americans to the poorest Americans, but redistribute America's wealth around the world. You can call that a conspiracy theory if you want. My analysis of the facts on the ground lead me to that conclusion. It's the only place I can get to. But they will pump any amount of money necessary. QE3 is about to happen. Uh, I also said that was going to happen. When did I say that was going to happen? When did I put that article out? Um, it's all Everybody's talking about it now, but I put the article out on TRTAM on July 13th. July 13, 2011. Uh, no, that was wrong. I don't want to. I don't want to say that and say that wrong. Uh, fire up the presses for QE3 was July 13, 2011. Uh, back on June 20, I'll read a little bit out to you. Back on June 23rd, I reported that for the first time, Ben Bernanke and I were in agreement. At that time, the good chairman had decided it was time to stop printing money, uh, better known as quantitative easing. If you are not exactly clear on what this quantitative easing is, this simple video will explain it to you, both in a humorous and depressing way. The key, though, is that less than a month ago, the federal chairman said three things of great importance. Two rounds of quantitative easing didn't work. It was time to stop doing it. He was confused as to why it didn't work. At this point, anybody with a pulse should have drawn two conclusions. Bernanke is a disaster. The man holds the nation's credit card is confused to why blowing $5 trillion of our dollars didn't work. Hell, listen to Ron Paul eat his lunch in this video, and it's Ron Paul just tears him across in this video. And I'll put a link to this article if you want to read it. Uh, as he didn't get why it didn't work, he would probably be lying when he said it was time to stop. The fact that he was confused should have told you he still believed that printing money was a solution, and eventually he would decide that they simply didn't do enough of it. Of course, in my first article on this subject, I clearly stated, quote, I predict QE3 will happen down the road, but even I am shocked here. Bernanke has now executed an about-face that would make a Marine envious with its speed and relative quickness on such an important issue. If you only took 20 days to go from it didn't work, it's time to stop, I'm not sure why it didn't work, to it may be time to start doing it again because we have to get the economy going. Yes, old helicopter Ben is at it again, according to a report on CNBC. Old Ben has now told Congress he is working on some new ways to stimulate the economy. How you ask the art from the article on CNBC. Minutes to the Central Bank's June meeting on Tuesday suggested that while some members were pondering the possible need for additional easing amid a weak economy, the Fed is not yet ready to take further action. But the minutes also reflected divisions within the Central Bank over further easing, and Bernanke's speech provided further indicator that QE3 move is far from off the table. Quote, even with the federal funds rate close to zero, we have a number of ways which we could act to ease financial conditions further, end quote, Bernanke said. Let me give you the nuts and bolts, Jack Spirico version of this. Quote, we have a number of ways in which we could act to ease the financial conditions further, end quote from Bernanke. It means simply, if the economy stays in the crapper for much longer, we'll start buying bonds again with computer entries, gobbling up toxic assets at taxpayer expense, and flood the markets with money because it's the only thing we can do. 
Indeed, it will be the only thing they can do as city after city continues to declare bankruptcy and run to the states for bailouts. They may talk of raising interest rates, but that is the only thing you can say when the interest rate is basically zero. Yet raising rates is not really an option. Do that in a duct tape holding the false recovery together flies apart. That was my article from the 13th. So um, I, I hope you just see how all this stuff is coming together the way that I've said and that I'm not just a ranting lunatic and I actually do know what's going on. Um, more depressing news. Sorry to give you more depressing news on your um, on your Monday, but... Uh, The, uh, this is on Dr. Merkel's site, and I love Dr. Merkel. I think it's a, if you want good alternative information, uh, this is a real MD that really knows what he's doing. Uh, and his title to this article, 50% of rats given this died. Why is it on your dinner plate? The first report was recently issued on ambient levers of glyphosate. Glyphosate, for those that don't know, is Roundup. And it's major degradation product. Uh, Aminomethylphosphonic acid, AMPA, in the air and rain. Glyphosate is widely used in herbicide in the U.S. Weekly air particle and rain samples were collected during two growing seasons in agricultural areas in Mississippi and Iowa. Rain was also collected in Indiana. The frequency of glyphosate degradation uh, ranged from 60 to 100% in both air and rain. D detection, I'm sorry, not degradation. Glyphosate detection ranged from 60 to 100% in both air and rain. According to this report, is linked on the website Green Med Info. The frequency of detection of the medium and maximum concentrations of glyphosate in the air were similar or greater to those of other high-use herbicides observed in the Mississippi River Basin, where its concentration in rain was greater than other herbicides. So, you can read the rest of the article if you want to, but uh, I keep saying I'm opposed to GM crops, and I keep having people that want to defend them say, but it's just the same as everything else, and we don't really know that there's anything wrong. I say, look, the big problem is that we genetically modify the crop, and then we spray it with Roundup. And then the Roundup ends up in our food. Well, apparently it ends up in our rain and our air, too. So this means, if this goes on long enough, I actually have concerns as to our rain bringing glyphosate to ground that's never had glyphosate, and our rain becomes something that starts to kill crops. And if you do this long enough, you get to a point where it's probably not going to kill stuff outright, but it's going to make crops that aren't designed to grow with glyphosate exposure uh, lackluster. It's going to slow their growth rates, make them more susceptible to pests and disease, weaken them. So what's the solution? Genetically modifying crops so that they can tolerate glyphosate. I mean... Do you, do you realize what we're doing here with this, this genetically modified nonsense? We used to use herbicides to control weeds away from our crops. So that meant their use was very limited. You know, we might, and I don't like doing this anyway, but you know, we'd spray it along roadways or in drainage ditches or things like that to keep some control of invasive weeds down. But you couldn't spray it on your crops. So there was only so much being done, but now we'll spray a million acres of soybean with Roundup. A million acres. But, gee, it's in our air and our water. What a shock. So yet another uh, reason that we need to rein this activity in. What I want to talk to you about here at the end, though, is this credit rating issue that everybody's panicked over right now. And I want to tell you I don't think it's time to panic yet. Uh, I think you better see what's coming. You better be making preparations for it. But I think there's still time. This is not the end. Just like when I told you it wasn't the end last time, I was, I was right about that so far. Um, but let me read this to you on... Fox News today. 
Uh, actually, it was published two days ago. U.S. loses AAA credit rating from S&P. The United States has lost its sterling credit rating. Credit rating agency Standard & Poor on Friday lowered the nation's AAA credit rating for the first time since granting in 1917. The move came less than a week after gridlock Congress finally agreed to spending cuts, lies, that would reduce the debt, lies, by more than $2 trillion, lies. Uh, to, <laughs> I have to say the lie thing, folks, because it is. A tumultuous process that contributed to convulsions in the financial markets, the promised cuts were not enough to satisfy S&P, because they're not real. I already read to you about that. The drop in the rating by one notch to AA+, plus was telegraphed as a possibly as possibly... As a possibility back in April, the three main credit agencies, which also include Moody's, Investor Service, and Flitch, had warned during the budget fight that if Congress did not cut the spending far enough, the country faced a downgrade. Moody says it was keeping its AAA rating on the nation's debt, but it might still lower it. Quote, the bipartisan compromise on deficit reduction was an important step in the right direction, yet the path to getting there took too long and was at times too divisive. End quote. The White House said in a statement, quote, we must do better to make it clear that our nation's will, capacity, and commitment to work together to tackle our major fiscal and economic challenges, end quote. Speaker John Boehner issued a statement saying the downgrade is, quote, the latest consequence of overspending by Washington, end quote. That's the first true statement in this article. One of the biggest questions after the downgrade was what impact would it have on already nervous investors? While the downgrade was not a surprise, some selling is expected uh, when stock trading resumes Monday morning. The Dow Jones Industrial Average fell 699 points this week, the biggest weekly point drop since October 2008. I think we have a knee-jerk reaction on Monday, said Jack Ablin, Chief Investment Officer at Harris Private Bank, but any losses might be short-lived. I agree with that. Uh, the threat of a downgrade is likely already reflected in the plunge in stocks this week, said Harvey Neiman, portfolio manager at Neiman Large Cap Value Fund. The markets have already been shaken out, Neiman said. I, it, it knew it was coming. One fear in the market has been that the downgrade would scare buyers away from U.S. debt. If there, that were to happen, the interest rates on paid on U.S. bonds, notes, and bills would have to rise to attract buyers, and that could lead to higher borrowing rates for consumers, since the rates on the mortgages and other loans are pegged to that yield on Treasury securities. Here, read the rest if you want to, but here's, here's the reality. I, I want to cover this and then let it go, and that's why I saved it for the end. This doesn't mean a thing. It doesn't mean a thing. The TV told you it meant something. Uh, the radio station told you it meant something. And they've been told it's going to mean something for a long time. And all it means is a knee-jerk reaction to the stock market. Uh, I present for you from the growth stock wire at least one person, Jeff Clark, who agrees with me. And this came into my inbox this morning. Here's what he said. Forget about the panic. Forget the gut-wrenching portfolio-busting decline last week. Buy stocks now. They'll be higher by the end of the year. I know it seems like an outrageous prediction, especially coming from someone who has pre preached caution for most of the year, but last week's market decline was more than just a buying opportunity. It was Christmas in August, and it set up the potential for double-digit gains over the next four months. Let me explain. You see, 2011 is the third year of a presidential cycle. According to the numbers put together by my friend Steve Surgon, stocks have gone up every third year of a presidential cycle since 1940, and the average increase in a year is 22%. The theory is stocks go up in anticipation of big government stimulating the economy as we head into election year. Whether you d agree with the premise or not, statistics back it up up the theory. Seven decades of data tell us that stocks go up in the third year of a presidential cycle. Even in 1987, the year of the big crash, stocks closed higher on the year. 
As you may recall, we kicked off 2011 to plenty of talking heads cheering about how this would be a wonderful year for stocks because it was the third year of a presidential cycle. I even conceded that stocks would close higher on December 31st, 2011 than they did on January 1st, 2011, even though I was worried about what they might do in between. Of course, no one is talking about the theory now, just about how everyone has turned bearish. From a contrarian standpoint, this is where we have to buy. Think about this. If stocks follow the historic pattern and close up on the year by just 1%, that's a 9% gain over the next five months. If stocks eke out a meager 4% gain they achieved during the 1987 crash, that's a 13% return from current levels. But if stocks can generate the average 22% return during the third year of presidential cycle, well then, like I said, it's Christmas in August. I've been cautious to, to bearish for most of the year, but I'm bullish now and I'm betting the big gains throughout the end of the year. Best regards and good trading, Jeff Clark. So I, I actually completely concur with that. The wild card here is the municipal defaults. We need to keep a real heavy watch on that. That is the tidal wave. And everything that can be done between now and And 2012, late 2012, will be done. You know, the 2012 doomsday predictors, they might be on to something. It won't be the world will split in half and a mine will come out and eat your children or something like that or whatever the nonsense they come up with. But late 2012, going into 2013, that is, that is my prediction, my timeline for the beginning of the second downfall. Uh, the real collapse. That's where everything falls apart. Because... Once that time is reached, the current administration knows the game is over for it. Joe Biden will never be president of the United States. That just isn't going to happen. They're going to do everything they can to try to keep this guy in office, and they are going to not let that crisis go to waste. And what you've seen happen to your country in the past four years will be nothing compared to what you see in the future. Here's the bad news. I believe that even if the Republicans find their footing and put somebody in, the damage has already been done, And you're going to hear more statements like, remember this quote? We have to destroy the free enterprise system in order to save it. No matter what the marketing speak is, no matter whether the current guy holds on, and that's his cold. I mean, this isn't WWF wrestling in politics, folks. This, this is like Las Vegas fight night, right? This is like boxing. The promoters control who gets in, but when they get in the ring, they actually beat the hell out of each other, and somebody wins and somebody loses. That's what a presidential election is. There really is a winner and a loser there. And unfortunately, the winner is whoever wins, and the loser is the American people, because the guy that loses the election, he ends up making lots of money writing books and stuff like that and goes back into some other form of government, like you know, John Kerry, still around, still making money, still married to the Heinz lady that's, oof, I mean, I think her parents must have tied a pork chop around her neck to get the dog to play with her. Uh, so he married into money there. And, I mean, these guys, they don't lose. But they lose the battle, but they just they continue on with the war in a different way. So that's my timeline. And I'm not going to panic short term here. And I'm going to keep doing what I've been doing. And I suggest you do as well. Uh, use caution at all times. Think about what you're doing. Remember, I'm not a financial advisor. Uh, I'm more, I would guess I would say, a futurist. And it's much easier to predict the big picture long term than it is the, the small occurrences in between. That's why I'm not a stock trader, uh, but I do believe in market timing. So I think we have some time left in this thing yet, but I really want you to ramp, uh, ramp up what you're doing from a preparedness standpoint uh, and look to the next couple of years of being massive, massive change and look forward to the end game of being really, really nasty. 
And if you again, if you want to know more about the currency defaults in the past, what they were like, and what they caused to happen, and what we might be looking at this time around, tune in on Wednesday. Tom Coitz from the Baldy and the Blonde Show. He is Baldy, not the blonde. And uh, this is his baby. This is his thing. What the Fed has done to the country over the last hundred years, and all of the ways in which we've had these past defaults and what they looked like. Tomorrow, I got a great show for you. Much more inspirational. Uh, the urban farming guys, actually one of the urban fa- farming guys, Jason Fields, will be on tomorrow to talk about the work that they're doing, what 20 families did by moving into the most crime-ridden area of Kansas City they could find, and rebuilding the neighborhood by planting seeds, both metaphorically, metaphorically and uh, literally as well. So tune in tomorrow. We'll have a great show for you. Tune in Wednesday. Uh, you'll get a financial lesson that I think most of you will, even if you think you know, you really don't know. I think Tom has some really important information for you to plan for your future. And then Thursday we'll do something cool. We're going to do lessons thus far from the Spirico Homestead. What I've learned by planting a simple container garden and a bag garden about my property, the intelligence that I've been able to gather that will help me in growing next year. I think maybe it'll help you see ways to gather similar collective intelligence from your own property. Friday we'll do the listener call show, so that's the week coming up. With that, this has been Jack Spirico with another edition of the Survival Podcast, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough. Or even if they don't. In our food these days, you know it's on our TVs. Sometimes we forget we are what we eat. I don't know the answer. It's like there's nothing I can do. It's the price we pay, I guess, we follow all the rules. There's a better way to do this Let me show you a better way You don't have to be another face in the crowd Yeah.